Well, good evening. It's great to be with you, and we want to get ourselves started right away, so feel free to pull up a chair. We're going to get things going, and uh, a brief overview again of tonight, what it will look like, how it will unfold, then a word of prayer, and then we'll dig right into our thoughts. Uh, tonight, a little bit different in that I'll, I'll give a, a longer devotional, 20-plus minutes, because I'm going to be covering a, a topic entitled Funerals, Families, and Forgiveness dealing with the whole matter of the relational aspect of the quality of our relationships in life as it relates to the time of dealing with the issues of death. Family matters and other matters, friendships and so on, and the whole significant aspect of managing our relationships well, all for the glory of God. Funerals, families, and forgiveness for about 20 minutes or so. Then I'm going to call again some of our healthcare workers to join me up on the platform. And what we would like to do is to divide our Q&A into four major sections. We'll start by asking the question, drawn from that first Sunday night together, what particular questions are still outstanding pertaining to the whole area of choosing your health agent. And so if you've been thinking now over the course of these weeks about particular issues pertaining to that subject, this would be a great time, great opportunity then to review it, address it, and perhaps develop it even further. And then after some moments, uh, we'll shift to the second category, the second Sunday night. What questions remain or what do you want to discuss further with regard to advanced directives? And then, again, we'll give the panelists opportunity to discuss that from a Christian worldview standpoint. We'll move into that third category. I'll introduce it, uh, the whole realm of palliative care, comfort care. And what further questions do you have pertaining to that? And then we'll tie together with tonight and ask the question then, and what do you still want to cover with regard to what we have addressed in tonight's teaching? Then, when the panelists have shared and interacted with you, I'll turn to them and ask them to provide a a summary statement, a concluding thought, and they'll come down the row, so to speak, and share, particularly from their own expertise, something that they believe God has laid on their heart that that, that they want you to walk away with. And then I'll close with perhaps a 30-second thought from God's Word and send us on our way. So that's the idea tonight, and I pray in advance that um, not only tonight, but also in retrospect, the previous weeks have ministered to your hearts and that you can take the collective wisdom of these outstanding people that have been involved in these panel discussions and share it with others as well so that we can minister effectively for God's glory. Let's look to our Lord in prayer. Our Father, we've been covering a very difficult subject that society typically wants to ignore, disengage from, but we want to address all things as a congregation, as people who love Jesus from a Christian worldview standpoint, because chances are, as we are able to address these from a biblical perspective, we'll be able then to 
engage people in conversations about the things that perhaps deep down in their souls they've always been wondered about but too afraid to ask or just haven't been sure of whom to ask. So we're praying for wisdom and insight. And as people then will be asking questions, not from not to tell their story, but rather a specific question that pertains to the topic that we'll be covering. We pray that it will be the answers that are given will be used by all to be able to minister to those that are part of our circles of relationships. Committing these moments to you now, Father, thanking you for this time together. In Christ's name, amen. C.S. Lewis, in his book, A Grief Observed, has some interesting statements. His wife, of course, died, and he was in looking back over the experience in his opening statement. No one ever told me that grief felt so like fear. I am not afraid, but the sensation is like being afraid. The same fluttering in the stomach, the same restlessness, the yawning. I keep on swallowing. No one ever told me about the laziness of grief, except at my job where the machine seems to run on much as usual. I loathe the sight, the slightest effort. Not only writing, but even reading a letter is too much, even shaving. What does it matter now whether my cheek's rough or smooth? They should grow a beard like me, I think, frankly. They say an unhappy man wants distraction, something to take him out of himself. Only as a dog-tired man wants an extra blanket on a cold night, he'd rather lie there shivering than get up and find one. It's too hard. It's too hard. So with that in mind, I want to talk for a few moments tonight about the matter of funerals and families and then transition into the whole issue of funerals and forgiveness and how all this fits together. The phone call comes in. It might be three in the morning at my house. The phone call comes in sometimes from the family and sometimes from the hospital, sometimes from hospice, sometimes from the funeral home, but the phone call does come and as quickly as when the pastors can, we arrive on the scene. It's best not to try to say a lot. If you're ever thrown into those kinds of situations, it's not a time to over-theologize. It's a time to represent grace. It's time to come in more with a sense of your presence than the sense of words. Because you're symbolically representing the cause of Jesus Christ. You're an extension of the love of this congregation. Presence matters. Words can't reverse what has occurred. But the fact you're there signifies that you do care. I'll be most likely then talking with the funeral home as soon as I leave. And if it's uh, highly effective on my part, I've been involved with medical personnel trying to get a sense of how this has gotten to the point where we're now at. The 
family will typically then make arrangements with the particular funeral home. And if you ever want to discuss one-on-one -on -one with me outside of tonight, um, uh, homes that are more geared from an evangelical standpoint versus those a little more secularized, we can. Because I've got to know the worldviews of funeral homes in various settings in various states. They have worldviews, and it comes into play in the way in which the family has got to then interact, because the last thing you need is a bumpy ride at that point when you're highly emotional and exhausted from what you have just gone through. Now, here's a sticky wicket for us. Somewhere along the way, you begin your conversation as a loved one pertaining to the one who's passed away, and you're going to have to address the issue of burial versus cremation. Burial versus cremation. And you haven't heard perhaps many people address that subject, grapple with that subject, even teach on that subject. Where do we go from here with that kind of questioning? I want us to understand, first of all, that when we look at this whole matter of the care of the body, from a scriptural standpoint, we're going to be doing so descriptively rather than prescriptively. There are at least five observations I simply want to make pertaining to the treatment of the body. And if you have opted for a loved one to be cremated rather than buried and others to be buried rather than cremated and so on, this is not a judgmental time. What I'm going to do is, again, keep reminding us over the next two, three minutes that I'm speaking descriptively, not prescriptively, because the scripture in the prescriptive sense of the word is silent on this subject. But descriptively, I think we've got, we've got some models to work with. For example, my first observation is that in Deuteronomy chapter 34, verses 5 and 6, God buried the body of Moses. So when you see him handling the body of a deceased one, we see burial taking place. Secondly, when I look at what took place regarding Jesus Christ, I look at the prophetic teachings of Isaiah in chapter 53, verse 9, on the context of how the suffering servant would be buried. And I connected to what took place as Joseph of Arimathea cared for the body of Jesus Christ, as well as Nicodemus. And once again, what strikes me is that in the Christian Judeo worldview, burials tended to be the norm. You and I know that in the whole matter of creation, there is this aspect of fire applied to body. We know if we love Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we have that assurance of someday having that glorified body, and Jesus Christ modeled the concept of the glorified body. What's interesting, thirdly, is that fire in the Bible is usually associated with judgment. In fact, in Joshua chapter 7, verses 25 and 26, Achan's body was consumed by fire. It was a statement of judgment. Fourthly, 
Those who were most interested in promoting the whole aspect of cremation in the earlier stages of history tended to be the Romans. They brought about a highly intensified approach towards cremation, which I find fascinating because it was on the rise during the days in which Jesus Christ was buried. And so you have almost competing world views at that point pertaining to the whole aspect of the care of the body. Fifthly, I also find it interesting when I move towards the second from last book of the Bible that evidently the archangel Michael found himself disputing with the devil about the body of Moses. It's as if Satan just can't let go. He seems so incredibly consumed with complete destruction. Uh, He's going after a body that God buried. Don't overlook that point. He's not merely going after a body, nor is he merely going after a body that was buried. He was going after a body that God buried. He is going after, once again, a principled approach of the will of God there. Now, again, that's descriptive. It's not prescriptive. And so we're not, we're not creating guilt trips here. All I'm doing is making some simple historical observations because, frankly, over 30-plus years in pastoral ministry, I've, I have been involved in the care of people who their, their loved ones' bodies have been cremated and those involving burial. We have the assurance of glorified body, though. We know that people have burned, died in fire, consumed that way as well. And God is not restricted by the way in which that person died. But I've given you now five biblical observations historically on the way in which the body was cared for. A family begins to gather around me in the library or one of my gifted colleagues. They're outstanding. And what I do when I sit down with a family, and very typically Mary Domus will be by my side or possibly Heather Tempest, I want to begin by getting a sense of the family. And so I will typically pose a general question. Tell me about your, it might be father, mother. Keep it open-ended. I want to know something about what made him or her tick, their interests, their passions, their relationship, of course, to God, or not so, the people that are involved in their lives. This will give me a sense of to what degree am I dealing with um, more of a biblical perspective among those grieving versus a more secularized Perspective, which is going to tailor my approach to the message I'll give during the funeral. I'll ask them now to join me, and we talk about the bulletins that we'll utilize, and Mary or Heather might hand out some samples of what we might do. We talk about music. I tend to find that the unbelieving crowd is less likely to want singing than the believing crowd. And so we take that into account. I try to then listen carefully so that I can determine what scripture readings we're going to be using during that service. But then 
I ask who would like or will there be someone who will be involved in standing up and sharing memories? Now, again, I don't pressure people because that's very difficult. It's difficult alone to stand in front of people, but to stand up when you're, when you're in the heart of the grieving process. Is, um, you can't even predict how you're going to handle that when you're up there. Now, if I sense I'm dealing with the uh, one who's passed away that loved Jesus, I'm going to ask if, you, if your family could pre- give me that person's Bible, because I'll use that Bible during the funeral service. And typically the night before the service, I will stay up late and I'll be moving through the chapters of that Bible, looking for where things might be underlined or thoughts written in. If the person likes to keep a clean Bible, I understand that as well. And Then we'll find other ways. But this next one I also pose in the library. Would you do this for me? I'll say to loved ones, friends, family members. By 4 p.m. the day prior to the funeral, would you email me or in hard copy, drop off at the office, stories. Grandchildren telling stories about grandpa or grandma. Husband, wife, children, friends, nationwide or outside, overseas, whatever. Send me your stories. Then what I do the night before the funeral, because I still haven't put together the message yet, is that using that person's Bible in front of me and then all these stories accumulating, I try to choose them as illustrations using the same approach that I might in speaking on a Sunday morning because I believe stories are wonderful windows that we can look through into truth. And furthermore, it personalizes. It keeps a pastor from talking about an individual who may be two or three steps removed compared to that grandchild who went fishing with grandpa and has a story to tell. What I find is that that ministers in particular to extended family members that don't know Jesus because all of a sudden they feel like, I'm part of this story. I know that person that's being described here. They're being drawn into the text, and these stories are meant to illustrate verses, and believe it or not, we teach the Bible in a funeral service, honoring God while respecting the memory of the one who passed away. I'll ask them to talk with me about their memorial fund, how they would want funds designated, and furthermore, describe what a committal service will be like, where it will take longer for you probably to get to the grave site than it will to stand there and um, experience the service. Because I will generally go to the passage in John chapter 11, where Jesus describes himself as the resurrection and the life, and then pose this question, do you believe this? which is what Jesus Christ posed in that chapter. And talk a little bit about the reception, what it would look like to come back here to this building or elsewhere. I would encourage people in our congregation, because this is a very loving congregation, I admire you, the way you approach this. Even the funeral personnel need to know Jesus. Don't walk by them. Just simply get in the line. Shake their hand, thank them for coming and being part of this. Some of them are simply volunteers. We know what they do for a living in, 
in this county and beyond. They're special people to want to be involved in something like this. And so shake their hand, thank them, and um, engage them in some conversation. Remember that the greeting line is not the same thing as the reception. There's time for added conversation in the reception, but the greeting line, well, we've got to be respectful, not only for those that are waiting behind us, but also because the family might be wearing down. They're tiring. It's been a long process. Long process. Sometimes it can be a little tense at the casket. You never know quite what to expect. My very first funeral, I ever did, I had ABC, CBS, and NBC with their cameras right outside a large facility because somebody passed away in an accident and there was an angry element out there in the gathering that were upset over the fact that they thought that one of the people that were in that funeral service at that time was responsible and some came in armed. And so these are some of the quiet things I had to handle behind the scenes. And so I had, I had um, police positioned quietly in various parts just in case we had to address an issue. It gets complex because emotions are raw and intense. After the service, then, be pondering as you minister to people. Are they grieving due to expected loss, or are they grieving due to unexpected loss? Make that distinction as you attempt to minister. Is it the grieving of a believer who passed away, or the grieving of an unbeliever who passed away? Be able to make that distinction. And look for the relational dynamics and who needs some added attention and care. Sometimes it's that overlooked one. Sometimes there is going to be one grieving quietly, somberly, and alone. Fewer words and a hug, an arm around the shoulder goes a long way. Funerals and families. Funerals and forgiveness. Now, the critical thing is that we have to manage our relationships well while we're living. Don't wait for the dying process to make reconciliation all of a sudden now, the be-all, end-all. People are wearing out. The whole aspect of reconciliation can be a very demanding process. Now we're attempting to condense the process into a short period of time in which we don't even have control over when that last breath will occur. We need to manage our relationships well, not wait for the dying process to unfold. Remembering again that the dying process is part of the living process, as we've been stating in prior weeks. But some thoughts regarding forgiveness because I believe that this is one of the biggest issues that I have seen as a pastor, the tension between forgiveness and bitterness as we move into those critical moments towards the end. There are some that I have jotted down that 
have a biblical bearing behind them. Fished. Forgiving is not forgetting. Forgiving is not forgetting. We can't expect our minds, if we're being honest with ourselves, to all of a sudden hit the delete button, and now it's gone. It's there. But there's a distinction between the forgiving part and the forgetting part. We forgive. Second, forgiveness is a choice. It's a decision of your will. It's not a feeling. It's a choice. And we're mandated to forgive. Third, in forgiveness, our goal is reconciliation, not retribution. If you're trying to reconcile with the one who's dying, keep that in mind. But also I find, and here's where it gets challenging again for me, a year later, and they're battling over wills and so forth. Again, the quality of relationships prior to that loved one's passing will go a long way to handling and managing and eliminating so much of the conflict subsequent to that one's passing. Because again, the goal is reconciliation, not retribution. Fourth, Forgiveness frees us from a victim mentality. We live in a culture where everybody is victimized, so it seems. But the mature believe it doesn't function on the basis of I am a victim. And they're consumed with what perhaps the one who's passed away has done to them or supposedly did to them. Or consumed with what the one who is standing next to him or her at the casket did to them or supposedly said to them. Forgiveness frees us from a victim mentality, and as we mature in grace, we get away from that idea. Fifthly, forgiveness involves living with the consequences of what that person might have said or done. You can't erase history. History is part of life. We have to then be mature enough to be willing to live with consequences of decisions or statements made in the past and forgive them nonetheless. Jesus did. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Sixth, forgiveness means not waiting until we feel like forgiving. You'll never get there. You'll never get there. We move beyond the immature state of childhood where we operate on the basis of feelings into mature adulthood where we begin to make decisions and allow the decisions to be the engine that drives the caboose of feeling. Seventh, forgiveness chooses not to hold someone's sin against them any longer. In particular, if God has forgiven them, why should we be different? Eighth, forgiveness is part of our life mission. People need to be understood, need to understand that the whole aspect of salvation itself involves God forgiving our sins. So likewise, when it comes to this whole matter of the dynamics of relationships, relationships, 
as we approach the dying process and the whole issue of death itself. Forgiveness is part of our life mission. It's part of what we're called to do. And not disengage from one another, but relate to one another and work with one another. That's something that Jesus' disciples had to learn. It's what the early church had to learn. And when a church is able to do this, we become a mature form of God's teaching in a culture that is looking for the visual to be coupled with the verbal of where grace is to be found. Funerals and families. Funerals and forgiveness. Some thoughts on these subjects. I'm going to ask the panelists to come join me up front now. Week by week, we've had various panelists, and I appreciate the health care providers and their willingness to be part of this. And we've been introducing ourselves over the prior weeks, so I'm not sure we need to do that again. But what I'm going to do now is to create a, um, Lord willing, a, a climate in here where we can have a sense of Q&A that's uh, based upon the parameters of what we will try to do as a group. So I'm going to pull my lectern again off to the side, find my perch over there near Paul. And we're going to start with this first category and see what questions you might have in the whole area of choosing your age and your health care age. So you're going to have to go back in your memory now to our first session. And um, we've got people up here who would love to talk that one through with you for the next few moments. So I'll get out of their way and see what questions you might have. And I'm going to ask those that have the microphones too to be ready then to um, walk around the room and uh, see what questions you might have. Again, though, as we prepare to ask questions, our goal here is to ask a succinct question that will relate and help all people in this room to understand better how to be well-equipped for these times. Save your life story. There are great opportunities afterwards. Jeff Lyons can't wait to hear your life story around <laughs> 9 o'clock tonight. Who's got a question? Choosing your health care agent. I have a question that's somewhat related to that. Um, If you are in a situation where someone did not do a five wishes and does not have a health care agent, and there's a lot of people in the family desiring to give input, what advice do you have in handling that and the best way to biblically navigate those waters? Well, I, I would say that um, it's, you prob- just as you're probably thinking, it should be um, like the family's setup. Um, husband or wife would be first, and then oldest. Um, and if, if that doesn't uh, work, uh, then we move, I think, then to asking the family who rises up as a, as a, as a uh, reasonable leader? Uh, proximity is a question. Knowledge is a question. Uh, health is a question that we ask. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think that sometimes that, um, that becomes apparent as you deal with a family. Mm-hmm. Uh, there may be uh, a, a father or mother who's quite ill, and then the spouse does not really want to take the lead on those decisions and they'll 
defer to the adult child, and usually there's one that tends to rise to the top, and the other uh, children uh, will turn to that sibling and, and let him or her um, basically be the leader in that, uh, in that position. But it doesn't always work that way, so it can become very difficult, especially if there tends to be uh, one sibling who, say, wants to have everything done and uh, is really pushing that that agenda, and so then it becomes difficult. So that's one of the reasons to to have a advanced directive where you can designate someone as your agent. That's good. I would also say that um, normally it will be the spouse, and the family will help that person, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And it's not usually a tension point, but if um, you may find that the family are, is making the decision, as long as it's functional and not dysfunctional, I think it works fine. I've had families where there were adult children and no one wanted that role, and so they amicably decided, you know, or the person decided if she was her own person to designate a friend or, or maybe another extended family member. I, I have seen that. Thank you. Another question? Heather, behind you. Is 18 the minimum age that you can do this, or 21, or when would it become legal and up, be able to be upheld? I, I believe some of the restrictions are, I think 18 is a legal age, and you can also you cannot designate your physician or anybody in their, their office staff. Looking at the five wishes in front of us here. It looks like, yeah, 18 is, is generally the, the age, although Colorado, it's 21. So. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. More questions on that first session, health care agent. Going once. <laughs> Any questions about being the healthcare agent. Okay. Somebody want to articulate that because I think Jeff has just found something that you want to develop further. Yes, I'm wondering what a healthcare agent does, and I would appreciate some enlightenment. A healthcare agent is someone that a person designates to to carry out their their wishes in the case that they would become incapacitated and could not make certain decisions for themselves. We talked about the five wishes last week, and if you remember the case study, the very specific things that were added, um, you would designate a healthcare agent, and that person would honor all of those things that you had in the advanced directive, such as I do want life support, I do not want life support, um, I want chest compressions, but I, I don't want, you know, I mean, you can have modified CPRs, it's very specific, and the healthcare agent honors that. And that's why it's important to um, share with your healthcare agent what your five wishes or your other advanced directives say, so that they can understand, even in your own words, exactly what your values and opinions are. Practically speaking, the healthcare agent makes the decisions as 
the person, the patient, would make the decisions. And we trust that, that the two of them are, are sort of on the same page. Mm -hmm. They may come in the room and say, she hates pink. Can we get this pink blanket out of here? She doesn't want the shades open. I know she always keeps her shades closed. I mean, those are some really practical things. She may not even put it in the advanced directive, but that person is mm -hmm. acting on her behalf. Very good. So just for clarification, what I'm hearing is that if you would choose to take on the responsibility of being a health care agent, it can be very time-consuming. It is a very hands-on process. Um, and that's... That's just for an awareness, not that it's kind of like, oh, the privilege of being um, named an honorary whatever, but it is truly a hands-on being there. So it is important um, not only to have someone who's living close to you, but also someone willing to put in the time needed. Although the health care agent might not necessarily be the caregiver. Mm -hmm. Good distinction. That's, that's a good point, and you know, I'll say this, although we're talking about decision-making at the end of life, uh, a healthcare agent, uh, that power of attorney may be activated long before the end of that person's life, and um, I see this a lot in, in my patients who have dementias, and they've designated a spouse or an adult child, or sometimes even just a friend uh, to be their agent, so that that healthcare power of attorney may be activated so they can help make those decisions. They'll be coming in with the patient for doctor's visits to, to help discuss things and clarify things. So it, it can be very time consuming. Mm -hmm. It's not something that just may last a few days. It could last a few years. Yeah, don't do it just for the honor. <laughs> it's, it's a working job. Mm -hmm. I would also say from my perspective, I will get a call from a nursing home about a patient that has taken a turn for the worst, and the nurse will say, do we send him to the hospital? Should we start antibiotics? Those are all the questions. And I have to say, does she have um, a health care agent or a power of attorney? And, and they will. And then I have to call that person, or the nurses call that person, and they start dealing with them. Uh, and a lot of times that is a process where... I have to start getting the daughter up to speed on where, she, where the mother's at or the father's at. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it happens over time. Uh, and they'll call me the next day and say, you know, I was thinking about what you said. Uh, I have her in the hospital, but I don't think I'm going to have her go to the hospital next time. And we make those decisions on the, on the fly, so to speak. We're going to have Jeff pose one. And then after this, we'll move to our next category of advanced directives, our week two. So start thinking about what questions you want to be asking there. So we're still in week one. Last question under that category. Jeff? Yes. Um, is there a line of succession of health care suggested or recommended? Health care agents, you mean? Yeah, health Yeah, you agent. can designate a health care agent your first choice, and then usually there's second choice and third choice. Mm -hmm. And okay. that you do designate that. And it's good to designate them in order of succession rather than I want my three children all to be my health care agent that can cause a problem, whereas you might choose the eldest or the one that maybe has a medical knowledge mm -hmm. to be the first one and then the next one so that there isn't a problem if the three of them don't agree. 
particularly when you're dealing with Christian worldviews or lack of, too, comes into play. Second week now, advanced directives and what questions you might have under this category where you'd like to ask the panel some perspective. In particular, we've had in front of us the various advanced directives that are also then out there on the tables. Um, I don't. I don't remember about the five wishes and the Columbia uh, setup. I thought there was something about the two of them that was different. Like one was accepted in more states than the other one, or are they exactly the same? I mean, does it matter which one we choose? It's a choice. I mean, they're both advanced directives. Mm-hmm. And to be honest with you, I would have to look at them to see the distinct distinctions between each one? Both the ones that we have back there, the Five Wishes and the Columbia one is accepted in the state of Wisconsin. If you have a blue copy, you need to add one sheet to make it accepted in Wisconsin. If you have the green copy, it's complete. The St. Mary's one offers a greater um, opportunity for discussion with your health care agent, and that that's a very positive thing if you want to use that one. But it's not there's nothing that goes with it that would, like if you were somewhere else, that would not necessarily be legal? Would be the legal Columbia the one? State, the, it would be legal in the state of Wisconsin no matter what hospital you were no, at? No, I mean outside of the state of Wisconsin. The Columbia one would not be acceptable outside of the state of Wisconsin? or well, it would Keep, keep in mind that... We, we have these, an attorney with us. <laughs> yeah, the, these... These are legal documents. If it came down to a legal question, if it if it came down to court, but if you're on vacation in Florida or you spend the winter in Arizona and you have your advanced directive from Wisconsin, then believe me, the doctors there will look at that and and will honor your wishes. But if it, if it came to a legal matter going to court, then it could be a little bit more problematic. And. Josh, uh, Attorney McKinley may have some something to add here. So the mic is going to head Josh's way. We always make a distinction between uh, ethics and, and uh, law when it comes to discussing these issues. So. Josh? I, I won't claim a lot of expertise in this area, but uh, there's something called the full faith and credit clause of the Constitution. And so if it's validly executed in the state that you live in, if you're a Wisconsin resident, you do it properly in Wisconsin, you move somewhere else, it'll still be recognized by those other states as a legal document. Um, If you lived in Colorado, then you would have to do it in a manner that would be valid in Colorado. But since you live here, even if you move, even if you go somewhere else on vacation, it's still a valid legal document in those other states. Thank you. Other questions on advanced directives from that second session? Okay. My, my thought here is we've been talking about health care, health care, and certain people who probably are uh, advantageous, but we don't know them. Is there going to be a cost to some of what the, the family would like or not like, and do they get it up front or what? How do you want to respond? Are you asking if there's a cost to filling out an advanced directive? No. Well, there's, um, there are costs in healthcare, and we're well aware of that. Uh, it represents 20% of our economy. Uh, at the end of life, though, 
it can go various ways. For instance, if the faith community nursing ministry gets involved in your life at the end, towards the end of your life or your serious illness, that doesn't cost you anything. If you have your family involved as their as as your healthcare agent, that doesn't cost you cost you anything. If you have hospice in your home, Medicare will pick that up. Uh, but if you have hospice, say at Richardson's Hospice, there is a room and board charge. If you go to a nursing home, there is a room and board charge. So you know, there, there, if you have a physical therapist come to your house, or or a, a a skilled nurse or someone like that, that may cost you money unless it's through a church ministry or a friend. I was just going to add, someone had a question about Mm -hmm. the differences between the advanced directives, and if you were looking at them, the five wishes is very custom and specific about picking music and books. That's the major distinction with the five wishes, if that helps. Mm -hmm. Any other questions on session two and advanced directives? Just to maybe remind people, what we one of the things we talked about in session two was uh, specifically limiting certain types of medical interventions towards the end of life. So we, we talked about feeding tubes. We talked about uh, resuscitation efforts or the do not resuscitation um, option. And uh, all of the advanced directives, for the most part, will give you a chance to do that. Some are more directive at doing that. Um, some of them are a little bit more general in terms of what your options are. For instance, in um, the five wishes, it sets up certain scenarios such as being close to death or having some permanent and severe brain damage, not being expected to recover, and having options of uh, either I want to have life support treatment in that situation, I do not want to have life support in that situation, or sort of the in-between is I want to have life support if my doctor believes it could help, but once my doctor believes that these interventions are no longer um, beneficial, then I want them stopped. So that's, uh, that's the way the five wishes is set up. The Columbia St. Mary's is a little bit different um, in that regard. Uh, it's a little bit more general, and it doesn't have certain scenarios like five wishes, but it really talks about more general um, aspects like attempts of life prolonging treatments uh, where you can just say I don't want anything that would prolong my life um, or I want all these appropriate treatments uh, recommended by my doctor until my doctor decides that that they will not be beneficial anymore. Um, So they, they cover the same topics, they're just set up a little bit differently. Very good. One last one on advanced directives, Jeff. We'll get the microphone in your hands so everybody can hear. While the mic is coming, you have the opportunity to pick them both up and look them both over. Mm. Because I like the Columbia in terms of the first pages because it gives you a lot of the, the questions and it gets your, your, your mind thinking about a lot of the important things that you need to think about when you're choosing an agent and when you're choosing decisions. Um, and then I like the five wishes because it's so well-ordered. And both of them you can write in uh, specific things. And as a result of being here for four weeks, you may know exactly some of the things you'd write in. Six months from now, you may not remember. Mm. Jeff? Yeah. yeah, the question or the comment I wanted to make was that 
There's a definite difference between a health care agent and a power of attorney in making decisions with regard to the individual's wishes. If people aren't aware of that, you know, that would be something that you'd want. It may be the same person, or it could be a, a different person with power of attorney. So it's something that you should consider also if you want to do both with a single individual. Any yeah, the power of attorney really is a, my understanding, it, it really is a legal financial uh, document or vehicle that, that gives you the legal power to speak for that person when they're not able to do that. I think we use the terms interchangeably, but I believe the state of Wisconsin really recognizes whatever these forms, you're, you're going to have that power of attorney for health care, and that's pretty clear. Maybe Josh could chime in on that. Um, you are right. There are two different concepts there. Um, it, and because of the language, we use overlapping terms. You can be a power of attorney, and that's just a general term that refers to the ability to act on behalf of someone else. You can be a durable power of attorney, which means you have the ability to act on that person's behalf even if they're incapacitated, which in the context of the things we've been talking about is really what's relevant. You can be a durable power of attorney for health care, or you can be just a general durable power of attorney. A durable power of attorney for health care is, again, the main thing we've been talking about with mm -hmm. this series uh, because that's the person who can make those health care decisions. A general durable power of attorney is that person who makes your financial decisions for you. Um, and that's also, I think, an important thing to think about um, as you are setting up for what might eventually happen to you um, in your incapacity. So that person is able to make financial decisions, and what we've been talking about is the health care. Um, they're both important. They serve different roles. So they can be the same person. And sometimes people choose different people for the two different roles because you may have, for instance, two children. One um, better understands your health care preferences, and one might better understand your financial uh, situation. Thanks, Josh. Let's go to palliative care, session three, comfort care, and the areas that you want to address and particular questions that are coming to your mind from last week's session. And feel free as a panel, too, to be asking each other questions, too. Palliative care, comfort care. Marge, why don't you define it? Um, I'll talk about palliative care, and palliative care is really the big picture, and then hospice is a subset of palliative care, but palliative care is looking at the whole picture of a person who has a life-altering or life-threatening mm -hmm. disease process. So it might be someone who for years will need some assistance. It's not like the end-of-life issues, but it's um, utilizing resources and coming around the person and providing that comfort care might be part of it, but also providing all the services that they might need and coordinating, coordinating those services. So think of palliative care as something that could go on for a long period of time and hospice as being the last six months of your life. And in palliative care, they may have a life-threatening or life-debilitating condition or disease, but they still usually are taking options for curative treatment, um, even though they may be declining with the life-debilitating disease that they have. A lot of times you see a person in palliative care 
for, for years before they perhaps might go on to hospice care when the curative measures just are not working anymore and they're continuing to decline and get worse. In hospice care, you um, agree that you want comfort measures, or, um, but you are not going to aggressively um, look for that curative care that she's mentioned. In other words, um, not having surgery or, well, there's many, many things, um, but it's just, it's a different mindset. It's a mindset that you want treatment and you want to be comfortable and you want to be well cared for but you're not aggressively seeking curative care in hospice. And well, let me just piggyback on this and ask the ladies in particular, what do you see as the um, faith community nursing's relationship to palliative care in general and hospice care in particular? How can our congregation be involved in this aspect? It's so important for the whole congregation to understand that we have faith community nursing in this church as a body of believers. These are, um, we're very supportive of each other and you as individuals are, but our, my fear um, a number of years ago was that perhaps people would fall between the cracks and not have that support like some of us might have if we're in a care group or ABF who would meet our needs. And so, as faith community nurses, we can come alongside you during a, a long extended period or during uh, just a short time when you have some crisis in your life. We don't provide nursing care, mm -hmm. but we provide support. We walk alongside you. Um, the best description of faith community nursing is not taking the lead, not, not directing the care, but walking next to the person. We can assist with going to a doctor and taking notes so that when you get home from the doctor, you can understand the many things that he's told you. We write those for you and then provide them with you. We can provide transportation through volunteers, meals, assistance in your home, prayer, and that emotional and, and psychological and spiritual support. Um, and then it, we have volunteers who work with us to provide those services. So... Are you done? <laughs> Faith community nurses here really are advocates. We're, we're for lack of a better word, congregant um, advocates. We, like Marge said, we don't do hands-on nursing care, but we can teach, we can guide, we can help um, determine if there's any questions. Last week there were there were questions brought up about. Um, how, how do I know if my loved one can't be at home anymore because they're not safe? Um, how do I know if my loved one needs to be in comfort care or palliative care or hospice care? And um, one of the questions that might um, help you determine that, and, and certainly a faith community nurse can, can help you with that, is to ask yourself, you might even be the patient if you're your own person and you could you know, ask, is, is this person sick enough that they, they might not be here within 6 to 12 months and that will not be a shock? Or is this person unsafe enough that, living alone, that um, if something catastrophic happened, it would not be a shock and indeed it would be expected? If you can answer yes to either of those two questions in a less clinical, less intimidating way, then you may have your answer. 
One of the things we want to do is to be able to provide resources because there are a lot of resources in the community that you might not know about. Mm -hmm. And so we can um, let you know about some of those resources. And um, even things like Meals on Wheels and Comfort Keepers. I mean, there's all kinds of resources out there if, if it goes above and beyond Faith Community Nurse. Okay, we have a question off to the side over here. I had a question about palliative care. You said it could go on for a number of years, but what do you do if insurance only covers, say, 10 visits? What do you do after that? If, if, this, if, I didn't hear the last If part. insurance only covers 8 to 10 months. Or eight, no, uh, 10 visits. Excuse me, 8 to 10 visits. I know how hospice um, regulation works, and they go through specific certification periods and recertification periods um, where it involves face-to-face -face evaluation by a doctor, and they have to determine if a patient is still appropriate for, for hospice care. I'm, I'm, I don't really work with palliative care, so I'm unsure There is that a one. new palliative care program that's just being set up at Aurora, and it's... Um, because there is such a need in the community, so there will be resources there that even we as faith community nurses could access the palliative care nurse from Aurora mm -hmm. to find out what could, what could be done. In answer to your question about who's going to pay for it, uh, it's a tough question. And as you know, the, the insurance landscape is changing. Um, also a factor is that palliative care is just now filtering down from the larger hospital settings to communities. And that's what, and as an example, Sheboygan is working towards palliative care. As we have definitive programs available to Sheboygan families and they want to partake, participate in a palliative care visit, they're going to submit that to the insurance company and that's when we know what the insurance company wants to do with it. And and, and there are every shades of color of insurance companies and decisions. Mm -hmm. So we can't tell you an answer to that 10 visits, 12 visits. I, I think it's changing and it's moving. Realize that palliative care is basically uh, comfort care, not seeking cure. And that's happening for 10 years of an illness or it can happen during hospice. Mm. Last question on palliative care. Linda, let's get the mic over to her. I just have one more question about, um, is it necessary or is it a good idea to, like if you, want, if you want to make sure you have a faith community nursing person, you know, do, should you write it in to your five wishes? I mean, should that be part of what you write in that at some point you... That's what you would like to have happen? Absolutely, mm -hmm. especially if you're part of a church or a member of a church and they have a faith community nurse and you would want that to come and read scripture to you or do errands for you or cook for you. Absolutely, that's what Five Wishes is very specific about, those kinds of things that you can write in. Except in that um, we do not, you do not need to wait till the end of your life for faith community nursing. You might have a, a brief illness you need help at a certain time, we're glad to help you with that, too. Okay, final session tonight on the whole issue of the funeral, 
families, forgiveness, questions you might have on this subject? Well, it was a question that didn't necessarily go along with the rest of this, but I've had two notices coming in, and would you believe it's from Pat Boone, who's a singer? Does this mean anything to you people? It's called a death tax. And I want to know exactly what that is and if it's even legal. Cecil and Josh, you want to tackle death tax? Okay, we're gonna we're gonna we're still gonna mic you because you, you probably want a lawyer's response here, not a pastor's. Well, I'm not giving uh, tax advice to any particular person here, but as a general rule, um, with the most recent legislative changes, most of us don't need to worry about death tax anymore. Um, the federal estate tax is in the $5 million range for an individual, $10 million for a married couple. Um, so if you do have uh, more than $10 million between the two of you, then I would recommend uh, seeking out professional uh, advice from an accountant or an attorney in that area. <laughs> so we know where Pat Boone's at. Yes. Any last questions on tonight's topic? Because what we're going to do then is to have a concluding statement from each of the panelists. Anything further on tonight? Heather? I believe a funeral is something that is normally planned within just a few days after passing. What about people who want to be organ donors or things like that? Can you still have a funeral? Do you end up having a memorial service? Does anybody know anything about that? Is there anything you want to say before I jump in? Well, yeah, I'd be happy to comment on that. Um, yeah, I, I'm an organ donor. I've got that on my, my driver's license. But that certainly does not in any way affect your funeral. If you want uh, an open casket viewing, then you could certainly do that as well. So uh, if you look at the, the organs that are uh, donated, uh, typically kidneys, uh, heart, uh, liver, but sometimes other tissues as well. But uh, the, the people that are in the organ donation or the reception business of the donation, you know, well understand the, and they're sensitive to the desires of the, of the families when it comes to their loved ones. So, you know, that's not an exclusion at all. I mean, the only exception would be if you, of course, wanted to donate your body to, um, to medical science, but um, that could still be accommodated uh, through the funeral home. Very good. Well, what I'd like to do at this point, seeing it's five after seven, is just move to some summary statements and to hear from each of you what you feel as though God's laid on your heart one last time in terms of uh, something that should stand out for us to take home. Well, I'll start. Um, and my comments are, are simple, but I just want us to remember that we are here tonight to think and uh, reflect on Christian perspectives in end-of-life decision-making. Because I believe we as Christians have a distinctive approach, and so we should be making our decisions distinctively Christian. And that means that we don't fear death. It means that we embrace life. It means that we, um, we love strongly. We sacrifice for one another. Um, there's so much that goes into that, I can't say it in a few minutes. 
And part of that process is completing for yourself an advanced directive um, because it makes the end of your life orderly. It helps you to not only live the end of your life well, but die well. And so I would encourage, that's why we did this. Uh, uh, We didn't just want to hand these out to everybody and say, fill this out. We wanted to give you a Christian perspective, have you uh, ask your questions, and now we hope that, that you'll proceed to do that. And we, many of us, are available to help you in the next weeks. So I'd just like to represent um, Faith Community Nursing and tell you that we are available. If you need help, call us. Call the office, and they will contact us. Um, We have two nurses just joining our team. We believe in the next couple weeks we're excited about. Um, But my concern for people who aren't here tonight who might not realize that we have Faith Community Nursing. So Mm -hmm. if you know of someone who has a need, a medical need, and they're struggling, Will you share with them that Faith Community Nursing is available to come alongside and help them? And if you'd like to be a volunteer with Faith Community Nursing, either with transportation, um, helping in the home with a little housekeeping or writing cards or doing chores for people or making meals, let, let us know because we could use your help. We can't do this all on our own. And then I'd just like to leave you with a, fa- with a statement that doing an advanced directive is a great gift to your spouse. It's a great gift to your spouse because at the time, at the end of your life, it can be very difficult for your spouse to um, make decisions um, that could be difficult unless you've talked those things over. So it's a great gift to your spouse and it's a great gift to your children. It really is a help to your children. So. We'd encourage you, and if you'd like um, one of the nurses to come over and do an advanced directive with you, we don't give you advice. It's all your choices, but we can just read through it with you and encourage you to get it done. Um, Feel free to call. Um, We spoke, obviously, a lot about death in the last few weeks, and it was brought up, I think, in the first session. um, I think one of the physicians brought up that they're, they're trained to... Um, view in general, um, giving in to death as as giving up. I didn't get to really define hospice, so I'm just going to do that now. But hospice specifically is a specialized form of health care um, for the terminally ill and their family. It's a package deal, the family and the patient. Um, one of the things that that I see in the three years that I've been doing hospice nursing, which is really kind of unfortunate, um, is the late referrals, when um, what happens is that that really interferes um, with a lot of essential work that that hospice nurses and really the interdisciplinary team, hospice team does, that consists of hospice doctor, nurse, CNAs, volunteers, chaplains. They collaborate 24-7, face-to-face, on the physical, the psychosocial, spiritual needs of of the dying patient and their family. Um, And it's just really so very important. Um, And I just think that Jeff also asked a question last week about what does Christian caregiving look like, and I think that it really behooves um, Christ-following practitioners, Christ-following congregants to not look at death as, as an enemy, especially when it's within God's timing and God's will because I'm, I'm quite certain that we don't look at 
at Jesus, and hopefully I'm not getting into Gary's territory, but I do not think that we look at Jesus conceding to his end-of-life situation as giving up on us at all. I'll just say, uh, uh, make a few remarks about the issue of, of dignity, and uh, we touched on this a bit last week about different types of dignity from what's called attributed dignity that uh, we think of in terms of our uh, physical appearance and characteristics, perhaps our status in society or our role in our family as a husband or wife or mother or father, and how illness tends to just gradually chip away at that, especially towards the end of life. So it's very difficult to hang on to that, uh, that attributed dignity. Uh, but we also talked a bit about this concept of intrinsic dignity, uh, a dignity that really cannot be taken away from us. It's a dignity that's conferred on us by God since uh, we are made as human beings in the image of God. Um, and as such, he, he makes us as um, agents and beings that have free wills. And we can, um, he expects us to be good stewards of our body. Uh, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, he says, um, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. So I think we do that in terms of the decisions we, that we make about what we put in our body, what we refrain from putting in our body, um, but also moral choices, too, in terms of what we do or what we refrain from doing as well. Um, and I think we have to, as agents, as free agents, um, we need to make those same decisions towards the end of our life and that we need to be honoring God as we make those decisions. So as, uh, as Jeff Line says, we need to, uh, we need to die well as, as well as live well. And I think that's the Christian uh, perspective that we need to have uh, as we near the end of our life, that we are... Um, uh, we are really not our own, that um, uh, we are God's, and that our citizenship ultimately is in heaven. Thank you so much, and I'm so thankful for these panelists as well as those others that have joined us up front on these Sunday nights. It's been a bit of a travel weekend, and so some of them could not be with us, but we're so thankful for their contribution. I want to close with just one verse from Second Kings chapter and it has to do with God's statement to Hezekiah. Listen carefully because I think this goes to the heart of what we've been covered over these four weeks. In those days, Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death. The prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, went to him and said, This is what the Lord says. Put your house in order. Because you're going to die, you will not recover. Now there's more to this story. But what strikes me is that this was God's word to Hezekiah via the prophet. Put your house in order. Which I believe is what we've been attempting to communicate over these four Sunday nights. It's our responsibility to put our houses in order. For God's glory. Let's stand together. So, Father, thank you for all those that have contributed in the course of these four Sunday nights. 
sharing the wisdom from their perspective fields, healthcare, minister to them and minister through them as they care for others. And frankly, for all those physicians and nurses and PAs and the likes throughout this congregation, we praise you and thank you for them. May they sense, Father, that your hand is firmly upon them. Give us as a congregation a tremendous caring spirit. And give us now wisdom to be able to articulate these things well. Being able to address issues with people who perhaps are wrestling with questions they're afraid to ask. May the result be that there is a wonderful ministry unfolding. And we thank you for that privilege. Commit each one to you now. Thanking you, Father, for meeting us at our point of need. Praising you in all these areas. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless. Good night.